everybody's mind all the time when they're talking about this and engaging this issue. It's the most important question. In order to get stuck right into it, I thought we could watch a video together, put your uh, brains into criticism mode and get ready to see what you can pull apart out of this. Uh, everybody's best friend. Let's have a look. Straightforward position on the issue of abortion. My position is in line with Roe v. Wade. Uh, that women have a constitutional right to make these most intimate and personal and difficult decisions based on their conscience, their faith, their family, their doctor, uh, and that it is uh, something that uh, really goes to the core of privacy. And I want to maintain uh, that uh, constitutional protection under Roe v. Wade, as you know, uh, there uh, is room for uh, reasonable uh, kinds of restrictions after a certain point in time. Uh, I think uh, the life, the, the health uh, of the mother are clear, uh, and those should be included uh, even as one moves uh, on in uh, pregnancy. When or if uh, so I, I have been, I've had, I've, I've had the same right. position uh, for many years. When or if does an unborn child have constitutional rights? Well, under our laws, currently, uh, that is not something that uh, exists. Uh, the, uh, the, the unborn uh, person uh, doesn't have constitutional rights. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do everything we possibly can uh, in the vast majority of uh, instances to mm -hmm. you know, help a mother who is carrying a child uh, and wants to make sure that child will be healthy, to have appropriate medical support. It doesn't mean that uh, you don't uh, do everything possible to try to uh, fulfill your obligations, but it it does not include uh, sacrificing the woman's right to make decisions. And I think that's a, an important distinction that under Roe v. Wade uh, we've had enshrined under our Constitution. You had said you're for some, you think some, there are room for some restrictions. So is it fair to say that women don't always have a full right to choose? Well, under Roe v. Wade, uh, that is the law. And as I said, I support uh, the reasoning and the outcome in Roe v. Wade. Uh, so in the uh, third trimester of pregnancy, uh, there is room for uh, looking at the life and the health of the mother. Now, most people, not all Republicans, uh, not all conservatives, even agree with the, uh, the life uh, of the mother, but most do. Where the distinction comes in is the health of the mother. And when you have candidates running for president who say that there should be no exceptions, not for rape, not for incest, uh, not for health, mm -hmm. uh, then I think uh, you've gotten pretty extreme. And my view has always been, uh, this is a choice. It is not a mandate. You know, I have traveled all over the world. I have seen what happens when governments make these decisions, whether it was forced sterilization, forced abortion in China, yeah. or forced childbearing in uh, communist Romania. So I don't think that uh, uh, we should be uh, allowing the government uh, to make decisions that really properly belong uh, to the individual. How'd you go with that? Hopefully, if you're thinking well, and maybe you don't even have to think that well, you can see she kind of gets herself into some interesting situations. Uh, she's, a, she's a politician, you know? She talks the way politicians do. But um, anytime you hear someone struggling with how to answer questions and stopping answers halfway through and maybe adjusting, there's a chance that maybe uh, they're struggling to answer the question for a good reason that maybe there's something going on there that they're trying to navigate around in order to avoid putting themselves in a certain situation. And she, she does, at one point in time, she absolutely makes the mistake of calling the unborn a person. She uses the word person, which is like a cardinal sin. She should know better, considering that this is something that she campaigns for so much. Uh, but, you know, luckily it's uh, NBC, is it? So they didn't pull her up on that. Um, I don't think they're interested in pulling her up on that. So, she gives us a lot to talk about. So, to structure this, just the first little part of this message, I just want to build it around statements that came out of that interview. 
and, and then make a couple of comments or ask a couple of questions and hopefully you can see what we're doing as we're pulling it apart. And the reason for this is basically to say, this is someone who is good at doing the job of being a pro-choice apologist, right? This is her job, she does it well. So these are the kind of arguments that you're going to face if you're talking with someone in reality um, in an impassioned, logical way. And this is not necessarily the way that you would go about talking to someone who is struggling with facing this issue themselves. I'm just talking about in the marketplace of ideas, how do we talk and how do we engage with this idea? So here's the first point that she makes. There we go. She says, women have the constitutional right to make these most intimate and difficult and personal decisions. All right, to be honest, we could break this up even further, right? Because there's a lot in this. So we'll start with the first word, women. This is a really important point, even though it often doesn't get discussed very much. In no state in Australia does the father of the child have any say at all about whether an abortion takes place. You might not know that. You might not have realised that, and it's important for you to know. This is absolutely a women's issue alone, and this is the way it is consistently cashed out. Now, when I first heard about this, I was kind of outraged. But the truth is that the logic of this absolutely makes sense. You cannot fault, for once, the, the logic on this side of the argument. Because why should a man, any man, be able to tell a woman that they cannot get a surgical procedure to have a lump of tissue removed? If the unborn is not a baby, if it's not a human life, then it absolutely makes total sense that a man can't have a say in this situation. The man is not a father any more than the woman is a mother because you cannot be the father of a lump of tissue. You cannot be the father of a tumour or of an unwanted growth. So you can't fault that logic, but still, don't forget it because this point will, will come back again. Yeah, the second thing she says is that uh, women have the constitutional right. No, the language is a little bit different to what we would use in Australia, but the point here is that this is political. She's a politician, so it's fair enough that she uses political language. But it's very important that we remember this, right? This has become political. It's about rights. She keeps coming back to Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade. Like, this is something that has been written down and everyone has agreed to, and therefore, that is the standard by which we uh, assess it. It's about rights, specifically those rights that have been enshrined in law. She's just being a law-abiding citizen. That's what she's doing. She's saying, this is the law, and I'm on the side of the law. The question is not, in this case, whether or not women are doing the right thing, but simply that they have the right. And they are two very different things. In other words, people use political language to shroud or conceal actual moral language. Now, depending on where people land on their whole worldview, on their whole way of thinking about the world, for some people there is no such thing as actual moral language. There is only political language, and political language is the thing by which we work out what is right and wrong. I, I have huge arguments against that as well, but let's just talk a little bit about this whole idea of whether or not it's legal. Because the truth is, I don't really care what's legal as much as I care about what's good, what's right. And neither should any of you. We should care about what is good and true and beautiful. And we should care about it above and beyond what is legal and what our government expects of us or tells us that we can do. And if you disagree, just consider what was legal in Nazi Germany. It turns out that constitutional rights, legal rights, political rights, don't actually mean much compared to actual human morals. You know, with hindsight, we all look back and shake our heads at the complicity of German citizens in the Holocaust. Right? This is a, this is a real conversation that people have these days. This com the complicity. Even if they did, didn't help, what, what did they do? I would love to live in a world sometime in the future where we might look the same way at abortion. I'm not always convinced that it's going to happen, but just because the government says that something is okay doesn't mean it becomes magically, morally okay. Thirdly, and this is where her opening remark becomes almost self-contradictory within the first couple of seconds. She says then that these are intimate, difficult and personal decisions. Now, 
what I'm about to say is going to sound fairly blunt. Hear me out, though. She says they are intimate, difficult, and personal decisions. Why? Why? Why are these intimate, difficult, and personal decisions? Why is it an intimate, difficult, and personal decision to have a tumour removed? Why is, it, why is getting an unwanted growth taken out of one's body a difficult decision? What's so difficult about it? Can you see the point? Hillary kind of wants to have it both ways. Somehow this is a woman's constitutional right that a man can have no say in and it's enshrined by law, but it's also difficult, personal and intimate. Why? The point is this. If the unwanted pregnancy is nothing other than a lump of flesh akin to a tumour, then take it out. Get rid of it. And then, you know, celebrate, right? If I had a tumour and I got it out, I'd be thankful. I'd be sharing the news. I mean, I can get why it might be personal and intimate. Depending on your personality type, you might not be kind of shouting it from the rooftops. But if nothing else, at least the decision to remove it wouldn't be difficult. Would it? Now, maybe here I have constructed a straw man. I don't know if you've heard that terminology before, but maybe I'm saying something um, about what the other side presents, the way they present their argument, which is untrue, right? I keep referring to the unborn as a tumour, uh, as if that's the way that pro-choice people think about it. And many of them obviously do not. But then what is it? What, what is it? What is this thing growing inside someone that makes it a difficult choice? Remember, the only question that matters, there's only one question that matters, is it a life? Is it human? If it is a life, no justification is good enough. And if it is not, no justification is necessary. If it's not a life, it shouldn't be difficult. So what's the next point from Hillary? She says, based on their conscience, their faith, their family, their doctor, this is a decision that women make based upon these things, right? So, again, I feel like once the first part of the argument has been pulled apart, it really becomes obvious after that. What does a person's conscience have to do with a decision like this? What does their family and their doctor have to do with getting an unwanted growth removed? And anyway, I thought it was the woman's individual constitutional right. Remember? That was their right. So why would their doctor's opinion matter, or their family, or even their faith? But she then says that it's something that goes to the core of privacy. And she doesn't explain why, but I don't know, you probably didn't hear it, but at the time the interviewer agreed. He's like, hmm, you know, he agreed with that one. We are obsessed with privacy, absolutely. She doesn't explain why this goes to the core of privacy, it just does. Now again, if she thinks that all medical procedures go to the core of privacy, then fine, she's being consistent. But if she is somehow setting up this particular procedure as something more, more intense, more difficult, and therefore more deserving of more privacy, then the question again is simply why? What is it about this particular procedure that makes it more private than anything else? And please hear me, I believe that it is more. That's my argument, right? It is more difficult. But the pro-choicer, the person on the other side of the argument in the discussion you might be having, needs to be able to answer this question. If it's difficult, why? The argument is that the reason it's difficult, which it is, is because it's a life. And few people, even rabid pro-choicers, will take a life flippantly but getting them to admit that it's a life is the most important part of the discussion. You really can't, there's nothing to talk about until that is decided. What point does it become a life? The whole argument rests upon dehumanisation. If it's dehumanised, it's easy to deal with. And this is why Emily's Voice, that great campaign out of Toowoomba, campaigns to humanise the unborn. It's not to demonise people who choose to have abortions, but rather to help us and everyone to fall in love with the unborn, to humanise the unborn. And listen, I'm not, I'm not here really just trying to take apart uh, Hillary Clinton. I wanted a video that spoke to some of the arguments that pro-choice side have, and this is a good one that does that. But these are really just the arguments that you are going to hear. These are the arguments that are out there and the ones that we need to be able to navigate around. And to be honest, I'm... I'm hoping as well that if there's anyone on the fence uh, listening to this, uh, that maybe this would help 
to prove what I think is obviously true, that that is absolutely illogical, that, that there is just no logic in it at all, this idea that abortion could be okay. So Hillary at this point has done okay. I know I've just kind of said that she hasn't, but really, relatively speaking, she's done okay because she hasn't talked herself in knots just yet. She's said it's a right and it's a difficult decision, but it's still a right for a woman to make that decision. But at this point in the, in the interview, things get a little bit more confusing because she says there should be reasonable kinds of restrictions. Why? <laughs> what for? Why would we need restrictions? What would there be any reason for any kind of restriction? Again, if it's not a human, if it's just a lump of stuff, why would we need a restriction against that? She clears it up for us in a certain way by saying, after a certain point in time. So yes, here it is. This is the clincher. And this is what it so often comes down to. After a certain point in time. What it means is that after a certain point in time in pregnancy, we're now all of a sudden less sure or at least less willing to say that it is not a human being. We're not necessarily willing to say it is a human being, because it looks like one, uh, but, and this looking like one makes people a little bit nervous. You can still do it, of course. Abortions can still happen, but there are reasonable restrictions. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, the same question needs to be asked, right? You don't need any restrictions if it's not human. And if it is, you absolutely need restrictions. It needs to be illegal. There's the only two options. Still, I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking the logic of this concept that there's a cut-off time, right? A few months back, as, a, as many of you would know, Queensland Parliament passed a law to decriminalise abortion. Up until October last year, abortion was still part of the Criminal Act. This law is, uh, the law now is that abortion is legal up to 22 weeks and the wording says, and thereafter with the approval of two doctors. So let's just take that first case, legal up to 22 weeks. The implication here, if we're going to think logically about it, let's just get really cold and logical, is that when an unborn fetus, and I use their terminology, uh, and you may as well, there's no reason to try to poison the well and try to set it up where there's a weird dichotomy, right? Use, use the language that people want to use. When an unborn fetus is 21 weeks, 6 days and 23 hours old, it is nothing. It is nothing at all. It's completely legal to have it removed. But a mere hour later, or if, let's get really picky, let's zoom in on the clock, right? Let's zoom in on the minute hand. At 11.59pm, it's nothing. A minute later, it is magically something else. What else it is, it's unclear, because it still only needs two doctors to approve and it can be removed, so it's clearly not a human life, uh, because it's not like if two doctors get together and approve, they can just go around legally killing people willy-nilly. So it's not a life, otherwise it shouldn't be legal to kill it. But it's also something different to what it was a minute before, because now two doctors are needed to agree to remove it. Does this sound weird to you? <laughs> I, it's insanity. What changes, what magic thing happens at 21 weeks, 6 days, 23 hours and 59 minutes? Look, and I, I know it's legal stuff, right? We need to have lines in the sand for all sorts of things. When you're 17 and 364 days and 23 hours and 59 minutes and 59 seconds old, you'll get fined for drinking in a pub. But one second later, it's legal. You know, that's what, seven, that's what people do, right? They wait until the clock and then they can walk into the pub and celebrate. Well, <laughs> that's what I did. Cut-offs, by definition, by definition, they kind of need to be arbitrary, right? Just for the sake of being able to have a cut-off, it's, it's arbitrary by nature. But this is, this is a little bit different to having a beer, right? We're literally creating this line in the sand, trying to determine when something goes from being nothing to being the most valuable thing in existence, a human life. That's what this line in the sand is delineating. But like I say, these rules aren't even saying that they are a human life, it's just something. It's something, because otherwise two doctors wouldn't be necessary, but not life, because otherwise two doctors are criminals. And I do mean criminals, because here's another absolutely insane element of the argument to be discussed, and which should never be forgotten, and which, if you can bring it up well, 
is a, is a good one to bring up with people because this is literally true. If a woman is walking across the street to an abortion clinic to have an abortion and someone hits them in their car and the result of that is that their unborn baby dies, then the person who hit them is guilty of manslaughter and could be charged with the offence of killing an unborn child, which carries the maximum penalty of life imprisonment. That's the law in our state. I just don't understand politics. I don't understand law. I, don't, I, just, I thought that lawyers and the whole legal system was built upon logic and about things making sense. But that is the most illogical system that I could imagine. At least in New South Wales, it's not like that. But it's actually the, it's the opposite in New South Wales. In New South Wales, it's still criminal. Abortion's still under the criminal code. But they've actually enshrined in the law uh, down there that um, it is not a child until it's born. So they've got it the other way around. It's still just as confusing and arguably, well, it's kind of better down there but kind of worse. But there's no consistency, right? That is absolutely confusing. There's, they've been trying to introduce a law down there for years, Zoe's law. I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's a story basically of exactly that. A person lost their child at 32 weeks due to a, a car crash and um, they want to introduce that as being involuntary manslaughter. Uh, that the that the unborn life is considered a life. And in, in New South Wales, abortion is illegal, technically speaking, although it doesn't mean that much in reality. Um, so you can't do it that way, but if you did it by accident, it would be okay. Strange. Now you'll notice uh, that the language of the New Abortion Act, with the consent of two doctors, abortion is legal thereafter. That's a bad choice of words, right? I mean, if abortion is legal after 22 weeks, so when is the cutoff? When does it become illegal again? And then the logic really only gets worse because the implication is that it bec someone becomes a human being when they are born. It is the point of birth. So again, the reduction down to tiny moments demonstrates the insanity of this. It's not a human, and then a few moments later, yes, sure, painful moments, but a few moments later, it is a human being. And this leads us to the crazy situation where in one hospital room a child was born two weeks early at 38 weeks and is a human being and next door a child who is a week older, more developed, bigger, healthier, more human by that measure can still be killed because they're not a human being. The cutoff time argument is an absolute farce. Anyone who wants to introduce a cutoff time needs to grapple with this reality. Or, if it's not a farce, we should at least admit that 22 weeks is far too late for a cutoff. And why would I say that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first one's completely legal. Uh, many of you probably wouldn't know, but uh, my wife and I, we've got three little girls, Ariel, Indiana and Harper. But before we had those girls, we actually had three other girls. In our first year of marriage, uh, Caitlin got pregnant with triplets, three girls. She carried those girls to 21 weeks and then went into labour. Uh, all three of our girls, Delilah, Aria and Verity, were born but were too young and too little to survive. So they passed away. Now, you'll notice they have names. And of course they have names. You know, we loved our children from the very beginning. We gave them names as soon as we knew that the name we chose would be gendered properly, right? But more than that, they actually have legal names. Why do they have legal names? Because they have legal birth certificates and legal death certificates. And they have them because we had to do that. A child born after 20 weeks in Queensland is required to be registered with the government and therefore it legally requires names, birth certificates, and in our case, death certificates. 20 weeks. Again, that's an arbitrary cutoff, right? We lost another child earlier the same year at 13 weeks. We never saw it. We never held it. We still have a name for it, even though we don't know for sure what gender it was. So the arbitrary cutoffs don't really mean that much. But my point here is that this is the government's cutoff. The government's cutoff is 20 weeks. And abortion is now legal after that point in time. So while we were forced, though willing, to have birth and death certificates for our children, in other words, they were recognised as human beings, the very same government has said that other babies older than this are not human beings. 
the lack of logic just continues. It's baffling. This is, this is real to me. This, my, this is something my family has grappled with, has been through. But in a situation like this, and I, I admit my personality makes this easier than perhaps it would be for some, but putting emotion to the side and dealing with it dispassionately, which does have to be done sometimes for the sake of reason discussion, the laws and the thinking around abortion make no sense. But there is another reason why 22 weeks is an insane cutoff, and that's this. Any cutoff is insane. Any cutoff makes no sense. Because they're all arbitrary. How do we know they're all arbitrary? Well, I'll give you a good reason. Everybody disagrees on them. If abortion was legal up until the 3rd of December 2018 in Queensland, it's not like on the 2nd of December all the 22-week-old babies were human and then the next day they became non-human, magically, which is kind of what the law is suggesting. To prove how weird it is, have a look at this table. You might not be able to read it, but I'll give you the gist. These are the laws in Australia. Every state, different laws. And the same thing goes for the US, that's my understanding. You can literally jump from one side of the border to the other and an unborn baby goes from being human to not human. You jump back again, human. Jump back again, not human. You stand with a leg on either side and half of it's human, half of it isn't. Obviously, that's ridiculous, right? But the point is to, to point out that the laws are ridiculous. That they make no sense. They're not connected to reality because invisible borders on a map do not determine reality any more than legal documents determine reality. And even if there is a time that humans become human, we don't know what it is. Is it the first beat of the heart? If so, that's around four weeks. Is it the first brain activity? That's around six weeks. Now, these are both the usual signs of life that we look for in a person. So at the most, it's six weeks, and that is a far cry from the 20 or the 22 or the 24 or wherever people want to cut it now. But even if we agreed on six weeks, it's still just a guess. It's a guess. It's perhaps a good one, but it's still a guess. The decision to use that guess and make abortion legal before six weeks is tantamount to throwing a grenade in a room that you are pretty sure is empty. It's probably empty, but it might not be. It's probably not a life, but it might be. Why would you play on that side of caution, right? Play on the side of being sensible about it. Using or relying on cut-off times to justify abortion on the basis that it is or is not a human at certain times is crazy because at best, it's a guess. But hey, it's not like anyone is even arguing for these very first and very obvious signs of life, heartbeat and brain activity. No one is arguing for six weeks. No, no. I mean, there's a weird speed bump at 22 weeks, that means now you've got to get two doctors. But really, the argument now is that it is not a human until it is born. And as we've already discussed, that makes no sense. Now, there are three tiny points of rhetorical nonsense that I want to throw out here just quickly. Anastasia Palaszczuk recently said during the debate that the law, uh, about the law change in Queensland, I've always believed a woman should be able to talk to a doctor about her own health and her own body without it being a crime. You might see it like this, right? My body, my choice, my rights. It kind of goes without saying. There's two bodies involved in abortion. I just, I can't believe that so many people buy this one. It's, the only way you can buy it is if you've dehumanized the unborn, right? Which is why the question of humanity is so important. Second one is this, being pro-choice does not make me anti-life. Another version of that is, um, I've seen signs where people are holding up saying abortion saves lives. That's, uh, that's... Uh, <laughs> I don't know, what do you say to that, right? The definition of abortion is taking a life, unless, of course, you've dehumanised it and it's not a life, which is why that's the most important question. Uh, and this one I hate, and Hillary mentioned this one, if you're against abortion, don't have one. That is the dumbest thing in the world. If you're against murder, don't murder someone. How is that? And in fact, this was an argument that was used by pro-slavery people back before the abolition of slavery. If you're against slaves, don't have one. Or what, are we on that side? we on the side of that? Like, that's terrible reasoning. Um, but logic is not people's strong suit these days. And I'll get to why in a little bit. Now, there are... I have to move really quickly, so I apologise for that. But there are some, I think, more understandable arguments. And Hillary touched on some of them. And this is not nice to talk about, guys, but we... None of it's nice to talk about. 
But this is the first one, right? And she used it, she talked about it, and this is an argument that people will say. What about in the case of incest or rape? So the arguments and the way I've been talking so far has been fairly direct and blunt. Uh, but this is not the way that we should talk to people who are hurting about this issue. This is absolutely one of the most brutal and difficult things in a person's life. It's difficult, and the reason it's difficult is because it's a life. I can't imagine how dark a situation it would be for someone to become pregnant as a result of this, particularly a very young person. That person would need absolute love and care from the people around them. So please hear what I'm about to say with all of the background that we've gone through already and with the deepest compassion possible. The situation in which a person is created does not diminish that person's humanity. It just doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how a person is created. That is not the thing that determines whether or not it's valuable as a human. Remember, if the unborn is a human life, no justification is good enough. And so, yes, this still has to count in these cases because if it's a human, it's a human. And, if, and, and look, if you want an easy example as to how this easy this is to prove, if the child was born and then killed, that would be murder. It's not like it's legal to kill people who, the, who are the result of incest or rape after they're born, so why should it be any more legal before they're born? It's difficult, but it's true. There can't be exceptions to the rule because they don't change reality, but this is why people argue from the exceptions and try to make them the norm. Because this is emotional, and this is difficult, and so let's go there and try to manipulate. But the truth is that this is such a small minority of abortion cases. All of the ones that we're about to talk about are the minority. But people want to use this emotional minority to push towards the norm and to legalise it as a result of that. The second is the case of disability. And I, 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 there's not much to say about this, other than to remind people of the tragedy that over 100,000 of the people who were killed in the Holocaust were killed because they were disabled. And if it was wrong then, it's wrong now. And it was wrong then. And so it is wrong now. Unless we decide to advocate that as acceptable, then we shouldn't be advocating the killing of disabled people just because they're not born yet either. Yeah, life will be difficult. And I do not want to at all diminish the difficulty that would be experienced by people who have children who are disabled. But you know, life with a disabled child brings difficulties, but it also brings joys. I don't have one personally, so I'm speaking from, from friends of mine that do. And they absolutely speak of the joy, the different kind of joy, the specific joy that they get from having a disabled child. Of what that person, of what that particular person with that disability tells them about the value of life and about the value of humanity. That it is not about what you can or can't do but about something far deeper than that. The final one and the most difficult and therefore the best argument uh, for abortion is when the life of the mother is at risk. And this is an exception that people use all the time. You know, Hillary kind of really hit on it pretty hard there. But again, this is pretty rare, really quite rare, compared to all of the abortions that take place. And in fact, I think that a way of talking about this with someone is, to, is, is what I'm about to suggest, right? It would be absolutely possible to legislate abortion in this case, in this case alone. That would be a possible thing for people to look into doing, right? So even if we said, I'm not advocating for it, but even if we said, if a, if a person is arguing with you and saying, well, what about when the mother's life is in danger? And you said, yeah, I agree, and that's the only time and they then agreed with you, they're not actually pro-choice, right? Because the fact is that this situation is so far removed from the situation of someone having an elective abortion. There's a couple of things to consider, right? Firstly, how sure are the medical uh, practitioners that the mother's life really is in danger? How much danger? How sure is the result? Is it possible to fight to save both the mother and the child? Does the child have to be aborted? Could it be given, uh, could it be delivered early and then tried to be looked after? 
But really, all of that, the big point in this argument is that it is completely different. It is a different thing, and that's why it's so infuriating for me when people use this argument. The difference between a mother who desperately wants her baby but loses it in the process of medical procedures that are designed to give both the mother and the baby the best chance at life, and a mother who doesn't want their baby at all, those differences are indescribable. They're not the same thing, not a bit. And so while the argument is an exception uh, that makes sense and is difficult, whose life is more important, that's an ethical dilemma that cannot be answered clearly and for all circumstances, it's a situation that no one would ever want to be in. And therefore, it's not a good basis to argue towards the norm of what abortion is. And the truth is that all of these exceptions that people argue for are not the real thing. They're not the thing that is at the core of the abortion argument. They're not the thing that people really care about. Because if you meet an honest pro-choicer who says they just want it to be illegal in the rare cases where the mother's life is in danger, they're not a pro-choicer in the sense that they're not all about choice. Because in the end, that's what the movement is really about. It's about choice. An obsession with the ability to choose. This is ultimately what the argument comes down to. It's a trope as old as history. Most of the times that I've been up here speaking, I've mentioned it, right? It's the original sin. It's the lie of the serpent. The reason for the Tower of Babylon, it's Satan's tragic flaw. It's the desire to be God. Everything that I've highlighted today comes down to one thing. We want to be God. And what is it that God does? He determines reality. So when we think about the insane lack of logic in the pro-choice camp, we can see why logic means so little. It's because logic is a limit. It means certain things need to be certain ways. And that limitation is absolutely unacceptable to the modern human who wants to be God. Because a limitation means that they're not. They're not God. Limitations are an affront to their deity. And so logic is done away with, ignored. What is it that determines the value of the unborn? It's the woman who's carrying it. And I shouldn't say that it's the value of the unborn. The thing that determines the humanity of the unborn, that's what's at stake. It's a human if it's wanted, it's not a human if it's not. And the best example of this can be found in the timing of the recent law change. It was the 18th of October last year when Queensland voted to decriminalise abortion. Three days earlier was October the 15th, which is recognised across the world as International Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Day. What's the difference between these two things? What's the difference between the people who would have been mourning on the 15th and the people celebrating on the 18th, the difference is simply whether or not the baby is wanted. Miscarriage is a common and tragic occurrence. It's absolutely devastating. And yet we live in a world in which a woman can be in a stage of life that she doesn't want a child, so she gets pregnant and decides to abort it at 15 weeks, free of charge. Ten years later, she wants to start a family. She gets pregnant and loses the baby at 12 weeks, and this time around, she's devastated. What's changed? Only her desires. This is what is truly at stake in the pro-choice argument. It's our ability to determine our own reality. We want to believe that it is human choice and desire that gives things value. That babies become human and valuable simply because we want them. And if we don't, they're not. But that's not the world we live in. That's not reality. Things have value. Life has value. And it is insane to believe that our thinking can change reality. In fact, that's kind of the definition of insanity. This actually comes down to a hatred of reality. Have a think about what Hillary said in the video. She said it herself. She might not have realised she said it. But she started getting confused and she said, this doesn't mean we don't do everything we can to help a mother who is carrying a child and wants to make sure that child is healthy. That's the most important part. The mothers want. Our Deputy Premier and Treasurer, Treasurer Jackie Trad recently said this, we would not be having this conversation if men were capable of having children. The right of women to control their own reproduction, their bodies, their own bodies, is such an important part of equality in our society. 
This is, this is someone who hates the reality of genders, who hates the reality that the world is a certain way and so eradicating that is the only way that I can be truly happy because that's what I've called equality. That's not equality, that's sameness, right? That's exactly the same. This is an anti-reality approach, a hatred of the way that, the, that things are. And this is the thinking that's at the heart of abortion. It's anti-reality. It comes from a hatred of reality, from seeing life not as a gift, but as an empty story to fill with our own meaning. And this anti-reality stance is seen in two ways. Firstly, the severed connection between sex and children. Sex makes kids. This is the forgotten reality in the post-sexual revolution world. Since the 1930s, when churches started to accept contraception as permissible, slowly culture, including church culture, has divorced the idea of sexual intercourse from the reality that it creates children, that that's how babies are made. The sexual revolution, spurred on and made possible by the invention of contraception, paved the way for no-fault divorce, abortion, the buying and selling of eggs, sperm and embryos, the payment for surrogacy, and the list goes on and on. This severing between sex and children is deeply ingrained in the hearts and minds of our culture. And abortion is simply one logical step in that process. No abortion would ever be necessary if every time people had sex, it was with the recognition and acceptance that they may become pregnant as a result. That is what it means to be really pro-life. The second is the commodification of children. It's very much connected to the first. But this is commodification that's seen when children are seen as products to have, to want or not want, based upon people's particular feelings at a particular time. And I know it's natural and it's not like I'm saying it's a sin or anything, but you can see it really early as young children start asking the strange question, how many kids do you want when you grow up? Like it's, and and what genders do you want them to be? Like I know that's nothing and maybe that's semantics, but we talk about it in such a way as to turn it into commodity, something that we want as a part of our life because it'll fulfill us or, or whatever. It's a very different approach to what God said to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, go, do it. <laughs> we live in a world where everything is based around what we want. We use the phrase human rights, but really this has just become human wants. Our desires are the most important thing. I'll skip past a bit of this, but from the greatest book, well, I should say that, second greatest book ever written. (laughs) I always get in trouble with that. Senior's Discontents, I've talked about it before, it's amazing. Have a read of the slides, but I'm well over time already. Uh, Life is a gift. If we look around and wonder why we live in a world living in the despair of meaninglessness, it's because people do not see their life as a gift. Life is good. Existence and reality are good. So what's our response? What, what, what should we say? I'm going to speak more in two weeks about what our response should be. Today was more about trying to deconstruct the logic of it. But the underlying response should always be this. Speak the truth in love. From Ephesians 4, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I love the connection there between speaking the truth in love and not being tossed around by human cunning. It's truth. Truth is, all, truth is the answer. Jesus is the truth. And a part of truth that these days we in our postmodern world have started to dissemble and pull apart is logic. Logic is your friend if you are in the truth. And so my hope today has been that you have been able to see the logic and that ways that you can ask questions and think about this issue. But love is always at the centre. You will not convince anyone by calling them a murderer. 
that doesn't work and I've seen it happen all too many times on Facebook. Well-intentioned or perhaps not even well-intentioned Christians ripping into people for decisions that they made based upon the situation that they're in and the culture that they've been put in. That's not what the world needs. The world doesn't need you to point fingers at them and tell them that they're evil. The world needs us to love them and to look after them. People have stories. Stories need to be heard. So today has just been about equipping you with ways of thinking about the argument. But at its heart, these issues are always personal, emotional and human. And so we need to be personal, emotional and human when we speak to people. We'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. Uh, but for now, that will wrap it up. And if there are questions, uh, we're over time, but if there are questions, I'm really happy to, to hear them. I don't know if there's been any. Yeah? We'll take, we'll take a couple if there's any. Hey, maybe you can just take that one straight up. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk no, about no, it. No, All right. I'll say something. Uh, what does God say about unborn life and abortion is the question. Uh, look, the Bible uh, was written at a certain time for certain people. Uh, this is going to be my answer. Somebody can weigh in, but... Um, he doesn't necessarily, he, 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 there's, there's nothing in there that's like, and here's the part about abortion where we can just clearly answer it. But he clearly talks about the importance of babies from the very beginning. He talks about stitching people together in the womb. He talks about knowing people in the womb. And if God knows people in the womb, then they're people. So I think that, that that's pretty clear as far as what God says about it. Uh, but just on that, um, my perspective is always, unless you're talking to someone who believes in God, bringing God into the equation of the discussion doesn't really help that much. So that's why I've taken this approach to just say, well, let's just look at the logic of it. If you're talking to someone who believes in God, absolutely talk to them about that. But the vast majority of the time you're talking about abortion, you're not going to be talking with someone who's with you on the God question. Yeah. And over to Sonny to wrap it up. Is this the right one? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I hope you enjoyed that, but it was, it's a heavy thing, right, uh, to consider these things. And uh, one, of the, one of the realities of uh, living in a fallen world is that every, everyone's a sinner and a sufferer. And uh, this is one of those issues, I think, that where sinning and suffering um, can run really big time, uh, side by side. Um, so all I really wanted to say is... Uh, it probably stirs a bunch of stuff up in you. Um, and I uh, wanted to just tell you that we support you and we love you and we'd love to care for you. You can uh, talk to Sue about stuff. You can uh, talk to any one of the elders or their wives. Uh, I'm happy to talk with anyone. Um, anytime you talk about things such as uh, miscarriages and, uh, and abortion and, and children, uh, it's pretty close to home. So uh, just want you to know that we appreciate that. And... Um, that uh, these kinds of things don't go away quickly. We had uh, one of the uh, ladies at the uh, intensive yesterday share her psalm and part of her psalm was speaking about an abortion that she had uh, a long time ago and the healing that needed to come to her that God kind of contributed to during the intensive this week, which is really beautiful, but uh, it's also a heavy thing, uh, a very real thing. So um, don't, um, don't carry it around with you. Um, burdens need to be shared with uh, within God's family and uh, and with God Himself. Uh, he sees you, and He knows you, and He knows the bit of you that no one else knows that you don't talk about. So uh, I might pray for you, and uh, we might finish at that point. Uh, there'll be a time for for more questions uh, down the track. Uh, I wonder if you just stand with me. Who knows that having a God who's compassionate and gracious and gentle to you and all the things you do to yourself is really good news. <laughs> we, we need to be like that. Even as we disagree with why people do these things and we see the uh, horror of it, we need to remember that um, the God that loves us and loved us out of 
our disobedience and our blindness is one that loves people to get themselves into fixes and they can't get them out. He doesn't say, uh, you'll get your comeuppance now, you've just got to sit in it now. He says, I'll come and rescue you, not just from what everyone else has done to you, but what you've done to you. And uh, we, we need to have, have that heart too. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm reminded of uh, reminded of uh, something Rafi Zachariah said that uh, it's only you that can hear the cries of every heart on the planet and not go insane. God, there are many, many heavy, weighty, painful things that go on in the world. There's many heavy and weighty and painful things that we carry that we've seen, that we've uh, perhaps had done to us, we've done to ourselves. It makes it even more stark, your invitation to uh, pour out our hearts to you, to tell you about every single care or anxiety that we have. You truly are mighty to be able to hear the cares, the anxieties, the troubles of every single person who chooses to give them to you and not go crazy. God, thank you for um, the way that you give us the unvarnished truth and then uh, commit yourself to walk alongside us in, uh, in the midst of that. Hey, God, please, uh, please be with us and uh, shepherd us, care for us well. God, I pray for anyone who's troubled at the end of today's message. I pray that you would just um, stir them to reach out to someone, to reach out to you, to talk about the trouble that's, uh, that's on their heart. Amen. Thanks for coming out.